Good morning. Well, what a, a rich time of worship we've already had this morning. I pray that we'll continue that now as we look to God's Word, John 18. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to turn there. While you're turning there, let me tell you why it's a good idea that your worship leader have a Bible on stage with him. It's because you want him to pick songs that are rooted in the truth, like Hunter does every Sunday. But you also want him to have a Bible in case the guy leading the corporate prayer of confession forgets his Bible. And then you can step over there and steal his. So, Hunter, thank you for leading us in worship, brother, and thank you for having a Bible with you. We are in John 18 this morning. Uh, We're going to look at verses 28 to 40. This is the beginning of Jesus' trial before Pilate, which will last uh, through next Sunday as well. So we begin Jesus before Pilate today. I hope you've turned there in your copy of God's Word. I hope you'll follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Then the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord, given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to give us ears to hear his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess again that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. By your grace, we are not perishing. We live. And so we know that the word of the cross, the word of the gospel, the word of God given to us in Jesus Christ is wisdom. It is life. It is power. It is grace. It is mercy to those who believe. So we pray for faith. We pray for our ears to be open, for our minds to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit, for our hearts to be made soft you would do your work among us this morning by your word. You build your church by your word. 
build us now as we seek to hear the word of God with faith. Please keep me from error, God. Please, Father, grant your church discernment to hold fast to the truth in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Outside of the New Testament, one of the earliest summaries of Christian truth is found in the Apostles' Creed. This creed, which was first written about the 3rd century A.D., was not composed by the Apostles, but it does summarize what the Apostles taught. In that sense, the Apostles' Creed captures the truth of the Christian faith. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Interestingly, outside of the triune God, there are only two specific people mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Do you know who they are? The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And do you know the second? It's the man we meet in John 18, Pontius Pilate. He's mentioned in the Creed. I find this to be somewhat ironic. The Apostles' Creed, as we just summarized, as we just noted, is a summary of Christian truth. The Creed summarizes truth. But Pilate's role in Christianity was to ignore the truth. That's what happens in our passage. Over and over, Pilate ignores what is true. He even dismisses truth as some abstract category that doesn't deserve a second thought. What is truth, Pilate says with a wave of the hand. What is truth? So it's somewhat ironic that Pilate, a man who completely disregards truth, is one of two people mentioned by name in the creed. At the same time, though, Pilate's inclusion is also quite fitting. Pilate and his response represents humanity's natural response to the truth. Pilate represents us. When faced with the truth, Pilate did not bow the knee. He crucified him. By nature, how does humanity respond to the truth? If you were at men's Bible study a couple weeks ago, you know the answer. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's how humanity responds. So you see the connection. Pilate's response to Jesus is representative of the human condition. We don't confess what is clearly true. Even when it's standing right in front of us, we deny the truth in some foolish attempt to justify ourselves and to preserve our own authority. Friends, what I'm trying to bring to your attention this morning is that this passage in John 18 is more than historically informative. Yes, the Apostle John gives us a very detailed look at Jesus' trial before Pilate, more detailed than any of the other Gospels. And yes, Pilate is a fascinating historical figure that you can learn about in other sources outside of Scripture. But this passage is not merely historical. This passage is personal. It demands a response from you and from me. As we watch Pilate condemn an innocent man, as we watch Pilate suppress the truth and unrighteousness... We're reminded of the massive question facing every person in history, the question facing every person in this room, how will you respond to truth, to Jesus Christ? Will you protect your own supposed authority, or will you recognize that there's a greater authority than you to whom you must give an account? 
It's not just a historical text, it's a personal text that demands a response from each of us. And so in light of that, here's how we're going to approach the text today. Very simply, we want to do what Pilate refused to do. We want to confess the truth, not ignore it. We want to confess the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Specifically, if you're taking notes, there are three truths about Jesus that stand out in this trial that Pilate doesn't see or he ignores. Three truths about Jesus Christ from this trial. And each one has a bearing on how we ought to orient our lives away from ourselves. Away from ourselves and towards Christ. So that's what we want to do today. We want to do what Pilate would not do, and that's confess the truth. We begin in verses 28 to 32 with the truth of Jesus' sovereignty. It's the first truth Pilate doesn't see. The truth of Jesus' sovereignty. The passage opens with the religious leaders continuing in their plot to get rid of Jesus. Notice verse 28. Then they, that's the Jewish Sanhedrin, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We know from the other gospel accounts that the Jewish religious leaders have already condemned Jesus for blasphemy, for making himself equal to God. Of course, there are, there are no witnesses to confirm Jesus' supposed blasphemy, but the religious leaders don't care much about truth. In their minds, the case is clear. Jesus deserves to die. Therein lies the problem. They can't execute him. Only the Romans have that capital punishment authority at this point. So in verse 28, they take Jesus to Pilate. But John includes this very uh, telling detail in verse 28. You see it there, the religious leaders remain outside of Pilate's headquarters. They don't go in. Why? Because if they go inside a Gentile's house, if they go under a roof that a Gentile is in, then they would be ceremonially unclean. And since it's still the feast of unleavened bread, the religious leaders can't risk defilement. They want to to be able to eat the feast. So in order to maintain their apparent righteousness, the Jewish authorities stand outside Pilate's house and and ask that Pilate come outside. Friends, do you see the sad picture this paints (laughs) of the religious leaders? They take these elaborate measures to maintain their purity for Passover while they are in the process of killing the one who fulfills the Passover. They, they, They are very meticulous to maintain the appearance of keeping the law while at the same time they are actively in the process of breaking the law by condemning an innocent man. From the outset then, verse 28 is setting the tone for the whole passage. The truth is not being upheld. It's being suppressed. And in verse 28, that suppression occurs under this veneer of self-righteousness. Pilate, for his part, appears to toy with the religious leaders a little bit, at least at first. In verse 29, he asks what the accusation is against Jesus. If you remember from earlier in the chapter, Roman soldiers were very likely involved in Jesus' arrest. So Pilate already knows what the charge is going to be. But now Pilate orders them to restate their case. What charge do you bring? 
This frustrates the religious leaders. Notice their response, verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You can hear their annoyance in the answer. We've already gone over this, Pilate. You know what we're going to say. This man is an evildoer. We know from later in the passage, verse 33, that they've already told Pilate that Jesus is a rebel. He's a traitor. He's a zealot. He's an insurrectionist. He's a threat to Roman authority. He's trying to overthrow the empire. He's guilty of treason. That's what they're going to say. They've gone over all of this. But now Pilate is not following the script. In fact, Pilate appears to send them away. Verse 31. Listen again. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews then said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. What is Pilate doing at this point? Well, I'll argue that he's putting the religious leaders in their place. He's reminding them of who calls the shots. They have come expecting Pilate to do their bidding, to rubber stamp their agenda, but Pilate's not going to be pushed around. If you read the other historical documents about Pilate, he had a reputation for being capricious and cruel, and that aspect of his personality is coming out here. He's just, he's just being, my kids would say, he's just being a punk. He's toying with them. By dragging this out, Pilate is reminding the religious leaders that they don't have any sovereignty in this realm. You're standing in my courtyard. In Jerusalem, Pilate is the authority. And if they want Pilate's help, then they're going to play by his rules. So by the end of verse 31, that's what what, what should be striking you. The religious leaders have very little authority. They don't have any sovereignty at this point. Pilate, Pilate is the one who thinks that he has the sovereignty. Then John writes verse 32. I love this aspect of the text. The Bible is amazing. And verse 32 explodes the delusion that Pilate is in charge. Listen again, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Whose word is sovereign in Jerusalem? Jesus' word is sovereign. The Jews hand Jesus over to Pilate, not because Pilate has the authority, but because Jesus predicted that this is how his death would come to pass. It's not Pilate's word that rules, it's Jesus' word. If you remember back in John chapter 12, Jesus spoke of being lifted up. And in that moment of being lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. What is Pilate about to do to Jesus? Lift him up on the cross in fulfillment of Jesus' word. So do you see the truth that verse 32 adds to this entire scene? The religious leaders come trying to manipulate Pilate, thinking they can bend him to their will. Pilate responds by stubbornly insisting that he's in charge. And all the while, it's the prisoner. It's the prisoner, Jesus, who has the authority. It's the prisoner whose word is sovereign. Look, it's another reminder, friends, that as Jesus goes to the cross, he, grows, he goes with total willingness. The nations are raging against God and against His Christ, and at every step, God is using the rage of the nations to set His King on Zion's holy hill. They're going to crown Jesus King in their rage, and in doing so, God's Word is being fulfilled. 
Jesus stands trial before Pilate, but the truth of the situation is that Jesus is and remains sovereign. It's the truth of his sovereignty. That reminder of Jesus' sovereignty takes us right into the second truth of the passage. Again, a truth that Pilate doesn't see. This is largely the main idea of the text from verses 33 to 38. We see the truth of Jesus' kingdom. The truth of Jesus' kingdom. The crux of the case against Jesus is made plain in verse 33. Notice Notice Pilate's question to him. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? On the one hand, Pilate's question is intended to mock Jesus. He's been arrested and handed over by his own people. So if he's a king, then it sure looks like his regime is on rocky ground. His question is is mockery. He's mocking the Lord. But on the other hand, Pilate's question is also intended to clarify the issue. Remember, we know that the charge against Jesus is treason. That they claim that Jesus is a threat to Roman authority. And Rome was right to be wary of anyone who made a claim to Israel's throne. There had been revolts before Jesus. There would be revolts after Jesus. And then you add in the heightened fervor of the Passover season, and the situation could be volatile. That's the whole reason Pilate is in Jerusalem anyway. His normal residence is in Caesarea, up the coast. He's in Jerusalem because things get rowdy sometimes. They're right to be wary So when Pilate asks the question in verse 33, he wants to clarify the issue. Is Jesus the head of an earthly kingdom? Is he a danger to Rome's empire? Is he leading a rebellion? Jesus responds in verse 34. He points out, first of all, that this entire situation is a setup. Listen again, verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? a very wise answer from Jesus. He knows his accusers are too cowardly to face him, so he calls the situation for what it is. It's a setup. Pilate is just parroting what other people have said. Pilate, for his part, is incensed. He snaps back at Jesus. Look at verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate points out that Jesus' own people have betrayed him. So from the outside, it looks like Jesus is in trouble. If your own people are turning you in, you've done something wrong. That's what Pilate says. The irony, though, is that by the end of the trial, who does Pilate end up acting like? The Jews. He sneers, am I a Jew? And by the end of the trial, that's exactly what he does. His decision is ultimately swayed by the religious leaders. His verdict is doing exactly what the crowd is going to demand. In that sense, Pilate does become like the Jews. He rejects the truth. But at this point, that verdict is still in the future. We haven't gotten there yet. The verdict's still in the future. Here, Pilate just wants Jesus to answer the charge. Are you the king of the Jews? That sets up Jesus' powerful answer in verse 36. Listen to how Jesus proclaims the nature of his kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Friends, that's a masterful answer from Jesus in verse 36. 
his answer is working on two levels. Two levels. And both of them are essential for understanding what he is saying. On one level, Jesus says his kingdom is no threat to Rome. He's not leading a rebellion. He's not preparing to take up arms against Caesar. He's not a physical threat to the empire. If Jesus were a rebel leader, then all of his followers would be fighting at this very moment. The fact that they aren't fighting should clue Pilate into the truth. Jesus is not leading a rebellion. He's not that kind of king. That's one level. But then on another level, Jesus says that his kingdom is absolutely greater than Rome. Do you you see it? Jesus does not deny that he has a kingdom. It's the quiet assumption of verse 36. Jesus just kind of slips it in there with the use of some pronouns. It's the quiet assumption of verse verse 36. Three times, what does he say? My kingdom. My kingdom. He has a kingdom. But it's a kingdom that's not earthly. At least not yet. It's It's not physical. It's not a military entity. Rather, Jesus' kingdom is the one promised long ago in passages like Daniel chapter 2. Jesus' kingdom is the coming kingdom of God where God's reign will spread over all of the earth with redemptive power. Jesus' kingdom is the one promised in Daniel chapter 7 where, where one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days and he receives an eternal dominion that will never pass away. That's the truth of Jesus' kingdom. It's not of this world because it's over all of the world. A kingdom that will come from heaven and that will know no end. So on one level, his his kingdom's not a threat to, to Rome, but on another level, his kingdom is absolutely greater than Rome. Now, to his credit, Pilate understands that there's probably more to this situation than what first appears. Notice in verse 37 that Pilate asks Jesus, so so you are a king? That's the right question, but Pilate asks it for the wrong reason. You can do that, by the way. You You can ask the right question for the wrong reason. That's what Pilate does. He asks the right question in order to condemn Jesus. So Jesus again responds with wisdom, and this time Jesus' answer focuses on the issue of truth. Look at verse 37. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, the key to verse 37 is the link between Jesus' kingdom and truth. Follow Jesus' words from verse 36 to verse 37. What kind of kingdom does Jesus possess? It's a spiritual kingdom of redemptive power. That's verse 36. My kingdom's not of this world. And Jesus' mission, according to verse 37, is to testify to the truth. Why does Jesus link his kingdom, verse 36, with testifying or speaking or witnessing to the truth in verse 37? Why does he link those two together? Well, think about the concept of truth in John's gospel. By the way, you can do this when you're reading the Bible and you come across a verse and it's got a phrase in there and you're wondering, what does that mean? 
Look for that phrase in other parts of the book. That's how you determine what that phrase means. Look for, the, look for other instances of it. So think about the concept of truth in John's gospel. How does John's gospel begin? With the affirmation that the truth is found only in God's Son. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the beginning then, John has taught that truth, capital T, truth comes only through the Son of God, through Jesus Christ. And that gave rise to probably the most prominent reference to truth in the Gospel of John. John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 1, we only know God through the truth of His Son. Chapter 14, we only come to God through the truth who is His Son. That's the link that John wants us to see between verse 36 and verse 37. Jesus' kingdom is not a physical realm of military power. It's so much greater than that. Jesus' kingdom is the revelation of God the Father through God the Son. It's the realm. Jesus' kingdom is the realm of God's redemptive power where through the Son, God the Father is taking rebels and turning them into citizens. And therefore, here's the connection. Here's the payoff. Therefore, Jesus' kingdom does not advance with a sword. Jesus' kingdom advances with God's word. A word. Both His word made flesh in Jesus Christ and His word written and revealed through Christ. This is what Pilate does not understand. Pilate is thinking in earthly terms how to protect Caesar's power, how to mitigate threats to the empire. But Jesus is operating in heavenly terms, in redemptive terms that far transcend anything Rome can muster. Pilate thinks he's going to stop Jesus. What Pilate doesn't understand is that a million swords cannot stand against the word of God. All of the armies of, an er of the earth cannot stop a kingdom that has no borders. And that reigns over everything. This is why Jesus has come. Not to overthrow Rome with an army. He's come to convert the world with a word. Even God's word. The gospel. Jesus testifies to the truth. He is the truth. And the truth is that God's kingdom will come and it will endure long after Rome has faded. Friends, there's a massive takeaway for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in that link from verse 36 to verse 37. There is a massive takeaway for us. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And we have been deputized by King Jesus to live as ambassadors of His kingdom. Our life on earth is meant to picture our citizenship in heaven so that more sinners will be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into where? The kingdom of God's beloved Son. How does that mission advance? Or to ask it a different way, how do the gates of God's kingdom get opened? Not through earthly means that emphasize our abilities, not through clever schemes of strategic operations that maximize the return on our effort, not through our determined strength or our willingness to fight 
for the truth. The gates of God's kingdom are opened with a word. The word of the gospel. The word of God in Jesus Christ. We proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And through that word, the spirit of Christ converts rebels into citizens. In other words, a church that wants to live for the kingdom of God, listen to me, a church that wants to live for the kingdom of God doesn't need to spend any time, not a single second ever, chasing newfound means of spiritual power. Church needs to give itself to the word of God. A church that wants to live for the kingdom doesn't need to run around the world looking for the next impulse of spiritual vitality. We need to listen and proclaim the word of God. A church that wants to live for the kingdom ought to put all of her energy, all of her commitment into making God's word central and primary in the life of the church and in the life of every single member. The worship of Christ through God's word, empowered by God's spirit, is how the kingdom of God moves. Not with a sword, not with power, not with strategy, with a word. Even the word of the gospel. That's how we carry out our mission because just like Jesus says in verse 36, his kingdom's not of this world. So we can't carry out the mission the way that the world would. That's the link. At this point, the passage takes an incredible turn. We're looking at verses 36 and 37. Jesus is talking to Pilate. Passage takes an incredible turn at this point. Amazingly, by clarifying the kingdom in this way, notice what Jesus has done. He has invited Pilate to enter that kingdom. There's no battle for Pilate to fight. There's no rebellion for Pilate to squash. Instead, there's only a kingdom of truth that Pilate ought to enter. If Pilate will hear the truth, then he will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set Pilate free. (laughs) Amazingly, Amazingly, the prisoner is holding out to the governor this this invitation of pardon. Sadly, Pilate doesn't want it. He dismisses Jesus as some teacher of pointless philosophy. Look, Look at Pilate's response, verse 38. One of the sadder sentences in John's gospel. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? You'll sometimes hear people say that Pilate's question is the response of a skeptic. You know, someone who doesn't believe that truth can be known. I actually think that Pilate's question is worse than that. It's the response of a cynic. Someone who has no time for such useless considerations. Pilate is only interested in the present. What he can see, what he can touch, what he can control. Don't talk to me about these abstract, ephemeral things like truth, whatever. It's the question of a cynic. And so with that sneer of cynicism, Pilate dismisses the kingdom of God. Here's an important question. Why doesn't Pilate hear the truth? Jesus told you back in verse 37. Look at what he says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's the same point that Jesus made to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. Remember that? That's actually the only other reference in John to the the kingdom of God. 
It's the kingdom of God shows up in John in just two places, John 3 and John 18. And in both instances, Jesus makes the same point. How do you get into the kingdom? You have to be born again. How do you hear the truth? You have to be of the truth. It's the same point. Receiving the kingdom, in other words, is entirely a matter of grace. Pilate is not of the truth. What about you? I said at the outset that the passage is not merely historical, it's personal. So what about you? This morning, will you hear the truth and receive it with faith? The Bible is very clear, friends. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who took on flesh for the salvation of His church. The truth is that Jesus laid down His life in order to redeem His people from their sins. The truth is that Jesus did not stay dead but rose again to secure his people's right standing before God. The truth is that the kingdom of God is entered by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what about you? I'm asking you. If you're sitting there thinking, I wonder if he's talking to me, yes. What about you? If you don't know Christ, will you hear the truth and receive it? Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, but I don't know if I'm of the truth. Jesus just said that those who are of the truth listen to his voice. I don't know if that's me. How do I know if I'm of the truth? That's a really good question. And the answer to that question is found in believing Jesus Christ. Only God knows precisely who is of the truth. That's his decision, not ours. The way we see God's decision on this side of glory is by seeing who responds to Jesus' word in faith. So if you want to know whether or not you are of the truth, like Jesus said in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you want to know if that's you, then here's what you do. Believe his word. Believe his word. Listen to his voice. That's his command to, to you today. If you're not a Christian... If you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, there's only one way to enter the kingdom of God, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for the salvation of the church. So you ask, am I of the truth? And Jesus answers you by saying, believe my word. Believe my word. Friends, that's the truth of Jesus' kingdom. It's not earthly, at least not yet, but spiritual It's not a display of military might, but redemptive power. And it's not entered by works or by merit or by wisdom or by power. It's entered by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate dismissed all of that with a wave of the hand and a sneer. What about you? I want to end this morning with one final truth about Jesus. This is the truth that Pilate, over the next chapter, will repeatedly see and repeatedly deny. From verses 38 to 40, truth number three, it's the truth of Jesus' innocence. The truth of Jesus' innocence. After Pilate questions Jesus, he heads back outside. He's going to deliver his preliminary verdict. Notice the end of verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What's the official verdict regarding Jesus? Not guilty. Jesus has done nothing deserving death because he's done nothing wrong. Even Pilate. Even Pilate 
can see that Jesus is innocent. This is the first of three instances where Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent over the succeeding verses. You would think that that would be the end of the matter. If Jesus is not guilty, then he can go free. But you know how it goes from here. Pilate is a coward. He sees the truth, but then he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He offers the crowd an alternative. Verse 39. You have a custom, Pilate said, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Again, Pilate is mocking everyone at this point. What kind of king needs to be released from government custody? He's mocking them, but the mockery is also wicked. Pilate ought to release Jesus. He knows he's innocent. He ought to let him go. But Pilate's going to play games instead. It's wicked. Pilate's action is not the end of the wickedness. The crowd, in verse 40, doubles down on Pilate's wickedness. They exchange the Messiah for a criminal. Look at verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The guilty goes free while the innocent is condemned. We know from other sources that Barabbas may have been the leader of an actual rebellion. He, he may well have taken up arms against Rome. And if so, the, the irony is tragically powerful. Jesus, accused of rebellion, is innocent. Barabbas, guilty of rebellion, goes free. The righteous for the unrighteous. Friends, that, that exchange of Jesus for Barabbas, that exchange is a picture of the gospel truth. 1 Peter 3, 18, it's on the front of your bulletin this morning. Christ also, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Barabbas is unrighteous. He's a criminal who deserves to be punished. In that sense, Barabbas is a picture of each one of us. We too are unrighteous. By nature, we are sinners, lawbreakers, who deserve God's punishment. Why then do we live? It's one of the more important questions to ask on every single Lord's Day. Why are we here this morning praising God and listening to His Word? Why do we live? We're as much of a sinner as the next guy, so why do we live? Because Jesus Christ suffered in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the great exchange of the gospel, and through that exchange we live. We are set free from sin's penalty because Jesus, the righteous one, stood in our place and, pun and was punished in our place, receiving the judgment that we deserved. That's why we live. The righteous exchanged for the unrighteous. Friends, this is actually essential to the gospel. Sometimes people will describe the gospel like this. The gospel is that God treats you as if you had never sinned. That's not the gospel. At least not the full gospel. The gospel is not merely God's decision to act as though we never did anything wrong. The good news is not that God sweeps our sin under the cosmic rug of the universe and then kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, just lets things go. That's not the gospel. That wouldn't be good news at all because it would mean that God is unrighteous. That He lets sin go. 
That he turns a blind eye to wickedness. That's not the good news. The good news is much more powerful than that. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. God deals with our sin. Once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. The righteous exchanged for the unrighteous. Friends, that's the picture that we have in the exchange of verse 40. Barabbas, the wicked, goes free because Jesus, the innocent, suffers unto death. The righteous is given for the unrighteous. And therefore, as Christians, we are now free from sin's condemnation. There's no guilt in Jesus and his perfect record is now counted to us. When the righteous is exchanged for the unrighteous, the unrighteous are no longer condemned. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he does not see the condemnation your sin deserves. He sees the righteousness of His perfectly innocent Son given to you by faith. And therefore, under the gaze of God, you are free. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Under the gaze of God, you are free to live in the light. You are free to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. You are free to be holy as God is holy. That's the good news of the Gospel. Not that God turns a blind eye to sin, but that God puts all of the holy focus of His eyes upon Jesus and punishes Him for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might become righteous in Him. That's the good news of the Gospel. And of all the places in the Bible, we're reminded of that good news in verse 40, when Barabbas is exchanged for Jesus. What should we say about this text? Pontius Pilate saw the truth and he suppressed it. By God's grace, we have been delivered from Pilate's faith, uh, by, by, from Pilate's fate. By God's grace and only by God's grace, we confess the truth. Amen? We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son and our Lord. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified dead and buried but praise God on the third day he rose from the dead and by faith we now live with him that's the truth and may God be so merciful to allow us to believe that truth today and every day until the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead amen let's pray father we pray that you would please help us now to be people who are of the truth that we would believe the truth, walk in the truth, love the truth, be sanctified by the truth, proclaim the truth, and treasure the truth, namely, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for how often we have taken the truth lightly. Forgive us for how often we have set aside your word, thinking that we needed something more powerful, more glorious, more vibrant, Help us, Father, to be people who are of the truth. Remind us that your kingdom is coming, not with a sword, but with a word. A glorious word that has risen from the dead, even our Lord Jesus. Give us grace now, Father, as we sing. Help our hearts to be sealed in confidence of the truth. Remind us, Father, that we have not made this truth 
you are using the truth to make us and to make us your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.